Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about games and how they embrace or challenge norms around discrimination, stereotyping, and racism in their world building. Uh, Today we're talking to Lester Lee. How's it going, Lester? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Pretty good. A little intimidated by this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think everybody should be. I think... I'm not going to lie to you guys. It's a good place to be to be feeling intimidated. It's more worrying when you come down and then people go, I am super ready to talk about discrimination in my fantasy game. <laughs> uh, so uh, before we get into the topic, Lester, how, uh, how long have you been playing? And I guess any other thing you think is relevant that the audience knows about you? Um, so I've been playing D&D since I was 12, essentially. Uh, I actually... Just did that Twitter thing where you go back and what was your first game and blah, 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 answer all those questions. Had to actually think about it. I started with D&D 1 when I was 12, found a copy at a garage sale, and had a moment of like, oh, I'll just buy this for three bucks. <laughs> what is this little crazy fantasy thing? I think it was like three weeks later, I bought a D&D, didn't know what was going on at all. <laughs> As a 13-year-old, started running games with me and my friends, trying to puzzle their way through rules. Initiative, what's that? Just do whatever you want. Like... <laughs> Got th- got third ed. Uh, finally started playing with high school friends. Third, three five through university. Played a little bit of fourth, and then really got back into it for fifth ed. Um, was part of the DMs tester group uh, with Wizards of the Coast. There was a when it was back when it was D and D next. There was a lot of iteration going on, a lot of testing, a lot of looking at classes and how does everything work. And at the time, I was transitioning from being a uh, sort of a general Canadian theater artist and opera artist into becoming uh, a game designer. And so it was a great experience. I learned, applied a lot of game design theory to it in production. And now I basically have this sort of role-playing group of 30-some-odd people that organize themselves around seven or eight different games. Wow. Yeah. How do you keep that many games straight on once? Slack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it, I guess. Yes, a very organized Slack. <laughs> so I think we should start at what feels like the lighter end, which is... The kind of inherent tropes in like in a lot of fantasy games specifically around, you know, races and types like, you know, you've got dumb orcs and perfect elves and all that kind of stuff. Uh, How do you deal with that kind of stuff? And what are your suggestions for getting people out of their comfort zones with regards to that stuff? So um, one thing uh, in a lot of our games is to think about a session zero, which I know you guys have probably have talked about already before. And is to be really upfront with your players about the kind of game they want to play. Obviously, there are players out there that want to play, I want to go into the dungeon and murder everything in here and take all its loot and go back, level up and do it again. And let's be fair, those games are probably not the ones that are going to tackle ideas of discrimination and racism, and nor should they have to. Like, if people want to play those games, all power to them. But like, in my experience, I have found those games to be the ones that sort of play for a month or two, and then they really peter out. They're the ones where people go, oh, I'm, I got a ball game that night, I got tickets to see a show, going on vacation, and then it sort of never picks up again. The games that sort of last really long, and I've run a lot of games that are more than 12 months long, a lot of really long-standing epics, some that have gone for four years, are the ones where 
players get super invested in characters and not only their characters, but character growth and how it happens in the world. And for that to really happen is to have a discussion at the beginning about what everybody wants, what everybody is coming into the game with, and what are people really interested in investing in. And if it starts from a place of going, hey, I really want to play a super smart orc who plays at being dumb, that's like, that's one of the best starting points. Because rarely does somebody say, hey, I want to subvert the entire culture of orcism <laughs> from the beginning of my character. But it, it comes from things of going, hey, this is usually the norm, and I want to I want to twist this norm ever so sm- slightly. You know, I want to play a halfling who is really offended by the fact everybody steals, or halflings have no sense of, like, what is ownership over things. But when they see that, they get really, really angry. Not just in halflings, but in all cultures or all races. That's a, that's a neat idea, right? I just, I feel like those are the kind of ideas that, in general, my experience has been those are the kind of ideas for characters that people who have been playing for a while come up with because they're like, I've played, you know, the bog standard paladin and the fighter and the barbarian. I want to do something fun. Hey, let's take one of those tropes and flip it on its head. And it's usually a pretty good place to start, even if... I think some people don't expect the immersion and like how attached they'll get to these characters because of just, yeah, I'm going to play against type and I'm going to play the smart orc or the really wise orc or the down as luck paladin who's actually not really all that much a fan of the gods or like playing against type. But when it's part of, like you say, the character growth of like you start out at this place that means that your character is going to have to grow or experience all sorts of things, then yeah, people get attached to their characters mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're like, I was going to go to a movie, but it's supposed to be D&D night. I'm going to go play D&D because I want to find out what happens next. Yeah, yeah, they really feel left out of that then, right? If they don't play. The thing I really like about the idea of uh, flipping character types and stuff on their heads too is that it it makes for more dramatic hooks and more places for the world to push back against the character or push into the character and interact with it, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess like that's the player choice. And I think because this is a show mostly for DMs, <laughs> how do you, how would you, as a DM, use one of those characters? How would you have the world push back against the halfling who hates theft, or the actually smart orc, or the elf who just is lazy and doesn't care about beauty and art? I mean, that's a good question. How do you set up structures that sort of twist on that for the player? And... I really just like being unpredictable about it, is the core of it. So let's go back to that, the dumb orc sentiment. One of uh, my favorite tropes that ever happened with that is I had a player who was playing a dumb, dumb in quotes orc, who was actually very, very wise. Not particularly intelligent, but very, very wise. And the other players got in their heads that this orc is, is totally against the norm. The stereotype of an orc is that they are both dumb and very also very unwise. Unwise. They make poor decisions. They encountered um, not this specific orcs tribe, but a, a sort of neighboring tribe of orcs. Um, sort of made their judgments based on that, and uh, basically went into a very bad combat for them and got taken prisoner, as you know, want to happen with players who don't prepare properly. Uh, but what they had discovered was that this tribe of orcs was actually all very wise. They presented themselves in that way so that they could trap unwary adventurers and not kill them, because that's the barbaric standard of what orcs are, as we understand from fantasy lore, but actually just to educate them. <laughs> and so I was literally putting in, and this is like, this is, probably when I was 21, I was literally putting in a piece that I could go, 
remember that moment when I flip, it was all flipped on your heads. Like you can't go in immediately thinking that you have this preconceived idea of all of these situations. Really quick though, all this talk of like not smart, but really wise reminds me of one of my favorite things that I've ever seen online, which is, I think it was, it was either on Reddit or on Twitter or somewhere. Someone was like, yeah, I had an orc who was very wise, but not very smart. And one of the other players tried to take a jab at, at this character by saying like, hey, that's a pretty big ogre, isn't it, Grog? And Grog goes, no, universe big, we small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, there are moments, I think, like having playing against type can lead to, you know, fun moments like that. But it is also a great, it can be a great opportunity. And this is where, like, me being cis male white guy touching on social issues of like yeah don't assume that you know what somebody's like because they're an orc in quotes or you know they're an elf or whatever so have you ever tried to have a game that dealt a little bit more like was a little bit more quote-unquote real when it came to dealing with some of this kind of stuff uh so actually most of my games are that way um i mean i'm asian canadian and i would say 90 percent of my my role-playing circles are caucasian um, there's a reasonable sort of spread between um, people who, ad- who identify male or female, and sexual orientation is probably all, all is honestly probably all over the map. <laughs> but in terms of racial biases, like it's fi- my my players are fairly Caucasian. Uh, I have one Mexican player, two Mexican players, um, no other Asian players. Uh, so I have a unique, obviously, perspective compared to you guys, where I can actually bring that in. But also, I am a cis male and have to do my research if I am going to introduce ideas of gender or ageism or uh, ability. Research is a really big part of that, right? And, and being open to having those conversations with your players and with other professionals about it uh, is a really big part of it. I do a lot of, and from the theater art side, you, we often do a lot where of work where we try to represent something, even though we know it, it might not be fiscally possible or even technically possible to have that proper representation of a subject. So if I was to do an Aboriginal play with 12 people, it might be very difficult to find 12 Aboriginal actors that fit what is necessary. And in D&D, it's the same sort of way. But D&D should afford us the ability to try and play at that, with the caveat, of course, that if you get it wrong that you will have to accept that that was a failure of research on your part as a DM or your part as a player, or and to also have the, know that the tools exist at the table to educate each other, right? Um, I think a lot of us have tried to play female characters, probably. And that's a very, I don't want to say that's a low-hanging fruit, but that one's easier, right? Because an, a woman at the table or someone who identifies with that is very easy to be like, you know, like, she would be wearing hose for that. Like, she would be doing this. Like, you need to spend longer in the morning in order if you want to chase your 18 charisma, you will need to do these things. Um, and that's a learning moment for those players then uh, that should be facilitated as, by us as DMs, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, that, like, I was going to ask, you know, do you think there's a, a way to tell if, like, we should always, when we're trying to portray, you know, somebody of the opposite gender, or the uh, whatever, like a different race, as dms we should be doing our best to try and portray that as well as we can i mean not everybody's going to be able to do perfectly and i don't think you know perfect is the enemy of good we're not Mm. always going to be able to do the best job i was going to ask like do you think there's a good like a way to tell if you've done good enough but going over in my head i'm kind of thinking like no just get as close as you can to 
doing your best and and be open to people saying that hey man either you know this isn't cool this isn't good enough like being open to your players saying like maybe don't yeah well yeah if you fuck up apologize and use it as a learning moment yeah and i think and we'll probably be coming back to this quite a lot especially for dms who are you know the default in quotes of Mm -hmm. you know cis white male because that's the assumed default audience for almost any fantasy thing but as that assumed default like we have to be open to saying like no i i got that wrong i'm sorry i'll try to do better and and not just saying it but like when somebody calls you out on something actually look into it a little bit like you don't have to go and write a research paper but at least you know if somebody says like hey try not to do this thing find out why why is that a bad thing just so that you're you know hopefully a better person but also so that if somebody else does something similar to what you did, you can be like, hey, maybe don't do that, and here's why. Yeah, like one of the main parts of doing this in D&D is so that we can help educate each other, right? We can we can use D&D as a vehicle to have these conversations so we can grow, we can discover as a group of friends, hopefully in a, in a safe environment. Yeah. And we can play at that too. You know, we can, we can do things that are fantastically weird <laughs> that are the step beyond that, which is... Hopefully when you get to that point, the trust and that honesty exists to get there. Yeah. So what are some set pieces that you could use to introduce players to some of these potentially uncomfortable situations around race or sexuality or any of this, these kind of things? Um, so obviously the, the orc example is a really good one. These kind of set pieces, this that is a very large set piece, I would say. Um, like that's a whole session in and of itself. Um, there are smaller ones that uh, I really like uh, in terms of sort of breaking players from the idea of what their biases are and getting them to think about mechanically, I need to roll to understand a bias or do I have history with this race? Have I seen them before? What do I expect? I recently introduced Tabaxi into one of my games uh, and under a different name and, and rewrote some of their cultural history from the official and decided this is a culture that is predicated on politeness. Uh, you must introduce yourself. Like there, you must say sorry, thank you. All of these things. They're very predicated on this idea of very regimented social manners. And my players Im- sort of immediately picked up on that from how I DM. But they have the presence of mind to go. But does my character pick up on that? And they can separate it out and start thinking. Oh. The exploration part of this is my character is not well nuanced with this race and makes these mistakes that I think might happen or might happen in the real world with cultures that are that way. And then they have repercussions and they get to play that. And that's, for me, that's much more interesting than I roll 18 and I get to bash down a door, but it's the, oh, I've done something to offend this person that I need information from. How do I circumvent that very awkward introduction with dice or words or offerings or... I guess what I'm curious about is how, as a DM, how do you play those scenarios? Because it feels like it's a very, maybe not a super fine line, but it's still a somewhat fine line that you've got to walk so that it can still be a silly, funny moment. But how do you keep that silliness from turning into what you're... Turning into just like outright racism or sexism or whatever. Hmm. How does it turn... So it, it doesn't turn into outright racism or sexism. Because like, uh, like, for example, like, you know, if it's still a, like a fantasy thing. So like take your your modified tabaxi race where like, you know, how do you prevent it from turning into this ex- 
a caricature, basically. How do you prevent you and your players from falling into just treat like caricaturing this polite race? So I could turn that question a little bit on you and say, what what would be wrong about me making that? What would be wrong about the characters interpreting that as a caricature? Now, if the players do, that's a bit different. Yeah. Um, and that is certainly something you don't really want to keep enforcing on them. But if their characters do, that's actually sort of interesting to allow them to play. Yeah, I, I can. I think maybe that's where, like, that's where my worry lies is that some players are not great at separating character right. from self. Some are great at it, and I think most people fall somewhere in the middle. But it's just that thing of making sure that everybody at the table is aware probably way easier if you've got a group that speaks in character when they're speaking as their character you know so that you have like oh grog does not like i'm sorry like this is just grog you know yeah. Like, yeah. You, then you like you have two different voices so it's very easy to tell but if you've got a group of people that just speak as they normally do and then they say something it's like do i call them on that was that their character so i think the group and you as a dm have to be very comfortable going was that in character like to get the clarification immediately yeah you also have to, you like, you are the person that is controlling the table. If somebody goes and says something outright defamatory or sexist or, or really just disingenuous, like, they have to know when they have stepped over the line immediately. And they have to, part of becoming a good role player is to quickly learn to express to your other players when you are in character and when you are completely out of character. Um, whether that's through hand signals, whether that's through, like you said, um, using a particular accent or voice, um, I have players that, like, put on a hair a hairband, and that's, like, their character now. And then they take it off when they're just like, uh, which dice do I roll again for that? Like, and but that's very clear signaling then. I like to adjust my posture yeah. when I'm, like, in character. Be like, ah. For, for those of you who can't see, Jesse just <laughs> straightened up his back a little bit. I mean, that's part of being a good role player, right? Is to help signal to your fellow players when you're playing and when you want to make a movie reference joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think you're definitely right that it's something that, as a DM, you definitely have to be a little bit better at. But it's also just something that you, if you play with the same group long enough, you get a feeling for yes. when they're talking in character and when they're not. Um, so um, I guess these kind of things aren't the kind of topics or scenarios that you throw at a bunch of people at a convention. Or... Uh, no, certainly not. And I have convention DM'd, like the hour sessions, the two hour sessions. And while you might put in really minor ones, you would put in very low stake ones is what I would offer. Yeah, you can put in that high wisdom or high charisma or high yeah. intelligence orc because it's kind of a cool little gotcha moment, but you don't necessarily want to base the entire session on that around with people you do not know. For sure, right? For sure. I think the, the the beautiful and also awkward thing of where we are at with fantasy and as a culture and as a genre is that everyone is entering into different places now, right? Where we used to believe everyone was super keenly aware of the Tolkien elf and orc. That kind of is no longer true anymore. People's points of entry are all over the place. Yeah, I think people probably pick up on it from the books and like you know if you look at the player's handbook and the way it presents some of the races and various bits and bobs people probably pick up on some things but i think you're right that there are people who coming coming in like have no idea that orcs are supposed to be these kind of crude society people yeah. and elves are meant to be like you know high fashion whatever i can't think of a word you're mostly just Bang. thinking of Taco from the Adventure Zone at this point, like high fashion. <laughs> I was going to say Vancouver yuppie, but... <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, more Vancouver yuppie, oh, okay. like more obsessed with status. Yeah. 
I think one of the cool things about having a bunch of people, like, because we've had this big influx of more people coming into D&D, and having people's different takes on fantasy coming into it means that you, as a DM, aren't limited to doing that and getting, like, pushback when you don't. I think the the kind of classic example right now is Tieflings. They're, like, supposed to be played a very specific way and, like, have all this demonic heritage and have a lot of baggage and almost everybody is like, okay... But what if they were just amazing and very sweet, and I love them? Yeah. <laughs> what if they have obsessions with donuts? Like, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and I think that's that's one of the things that I think is that is really valuable about D anD D as a tool to explore these kind of things because you can have somebody who wants to play the donut loving tiefling or the wise orc or whatever, and you can use it as an opportunity to be like, you know, if, if before, if there's something happening in the news or in, or in the world, you can just be like, we're going to explore this in this fantasy setting a little bit. Just to like, you know, there are probably groups of people, like you probably end up playing with people that are like you. So mm-hmm. if you want to explore these kind of things, you're probably going to have a group that wants to, that would be okay doing it. But I mean, I've heard some awesome things about how D&D has been used to like, help kids who have a camera like autism like autism, autism and social social disorders who yeah. like need help figuring out social cues and stuff like that and i think there's a lot of really cool power in how this how this game can be used to help people learn these things yeah it's it, one of the great things is that it codifies and mechanicizes for them an understanding of that and i have dm'd a lot for children and i used to teach uh, not teach, but like run D&D sessions at lo- local libraries and things. So for an autistic child or a, a coded child, maybe is probably a better term to be able to say, I'm at like an eight right now. And you're like out of 20. Okay. Like that. I understand that now. I understand where you are at and you have a set of language to talk to me about that. Um, and that's like, that's sort of the power of D&D, right? That's also the I mean, I guess that's the glorious part of D&D these days is the kids have this way in where they can play anything. Yeah. And I guess it, it depends on that, like, session zero and what your players want. But if there's somebody who comes in who wants to play the donut-loving tiefling and you know that, like, tieflings are seen as... Maybe you and your players are like, yeah, tiefling love donuts, whatever. But you know that, like, in the world they're seen as often dangerous. Yeah. They've got demonic heritage. Or, you know, the intelligent orc who's actually a sophisticate like how do you do you have any tips i guess this is for people who want to play those things dms who have characters like that in their game do you have tips on how to just deal with that if the player has said that they want to have a little bit of a rougher ride because they're playing a tiefling or an orc or Or alternatively if they said they haven't because i'm getting i've gotten that i've heard that from friends and stuff too where they've come into a world and specifically with tieflings or half orcs too and they not understanding maybe what the DM's homeworld brew is like, they'll get a lot more pushback than they expected, and, you know, it's not what they're looking for in their game. I feel like in those situations, you just have to kind of adjust on the fly and be like, oh, yeah, I guess people are fine with tieflings because it's really uncomfortable for this person. But for a person who comes in wanting that pushback... Uh, For a person that comes in wanting that pushback, the best advice I can give is that you, as a DM, need to learn a very clear signaling about that. So one of the things I often do is a lot of my worlds tend to be, my cities tend to be quite metropolitan. And so I can signal very quickly when they arrive at towns and go like, you see other orcs, you see other this, you see other that. And then they, they have, a, they have a, an idea of where they're at in terms of threat, in terms of danger, in terms of prejudice. Um, whereas you go to other towns, 
and you might go, oh, like you see orcs in chains here. Immediately that from that signaling that I have given that player, they go, I understand what kind of threat might exist in this town to me or to species like me. And being very clear about that and offering that, I think, is, is a part of sort of adjusting their stress levels around it, but also their expectations. Yeah, And that makes a lot of sense because, you know, somebody who is, like, say, a half-orc who's used to adventuring and has seen the wor- world will be looking out for those things anyway. Yeah. They will be noticing those things every time they go into a new place. And, and like, the small set pieces that we talk about, in one of my uh, adventure guides that I'm writing right now, in a tiny little hundred-person town, the general store manager is a ratkin. Just by virtue of saying that, my, my, any player immediately realizes, oh, this world is at this point. Uh, that's a very clear line, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, Ratkins are now trusted with foodstuffs, with business. They own property. They must have some kind of voice in order to occupy one of eight buildings in a little hamlet. Like, they must be trustworthy at some point to have that. Yeah. And then that, that also just offers a really rich area for the characters to explore, explore the world and yeah. like talk to that NPC and find out is it like is it just him that's an exception for some reason yeah is it him is he weird or like is that common yeah. is there like rat you know is it a rat burger king in every town and it's this <laughs> massive family like but all these things become part of your world yeah I like that a lot yeah <laughs> so when you we've kind of touched on it here and there but if you've got players that you know are mature that can handle the more serious campaigns. Because so far we've kind of been talking about like, oh, a player wants some pushback. They do want there to be, they're playing a tiefling. They want a little bit of racism against tieflings from, you know, the boonies or whatever, or whatever they're playing, you know, little bits and pieces where like every now and then, like maybe every sixth six session when they walk into town, somebody's going to be like, Rah! but how do you plan and execute a campaign with mature players that you can know can handle it that's specifically about tackling taking a social issue from our world turning it into a campaign so the best way is to look at the actual social issues and see how they get replicated so it's very easy and this is the unfortunate part but it is very easy to make city guards rough up goblins and orcs first right and that's super analogous to middle america right now with black people but when you for when and I don't want to say when you force that into your campaign, but when you put that there, you immediately cause your players to confront this analogous situation. I was nowhere near that thief, but you're an orc. You must know who took that whatever. That that is not outside the world of possibility that exists right now in our world, and is very serious. But it affords our players hopefully a chance to confront that where they might never have seen that idea at all, um, or had to think about that. I'm with five other people. Well, they're all human, and you're an orc. You obviously did it. I just, yeah, I going back to the research bit, I feel like this is definitely one of those times where, like, you can't skimp at all on the research. No. Like, you have to have, at least as much as you are humanly able, fully understand what it is that you're trying to portray so that you don't make things worse. Either, like, especially if you've got a person of color at your table mm-hmm. or somebody of, you know, LG, LGBTQ think that's all the letters i can't remember no it's not Uh, it's the commonly used yes shorthand sorry um if you've got somebody at your table who has said that they were open to exploring this you don't want to accidentally just make them shrink into themselves because they're feeling like this is just no fun at all 
Yes. Uh, so a part of that, obviously, there's a lot of trust that has to be between you and your players. Um, I do know there are some systems where um, there's the X card. If someone puts up the X, we end the scene. Yeah, we've talked. We had a we talked to we had Jalen on Jalen on yeah. recently. We talked about uh, problem players and also how to deal with various situations. You know, like fading to black, the veil, uh, yes. the X card, like all these all these tools for the players and the DM to use when something is becoming uncomfortable. Yes. I'm not a fan, personally, of stopping a scene midway, unless there's some really big issue, which I think most of my players would would vocalize that. Because I think, for my situation, there's enough trust that they know I will get to a point where there is a payoff for having to deal with that issue, whether it's in that session or it's in subsequent sessions. Um, but that demands a lot. Like, I have players who have played with me for 10 years. I guess... I guess... A question is like, how do you let your players know? Like, I get there is a bunch they have to have trust. They like they have, to have trust. But if you have a session where it's kind of just this downhill slog into like just terrible. Oh my god, this sucks. Is there ways that you can signal to your players that like, hey, there's going to be a great payoff that you're all going to hopefully enjoy, but it'll at least make you feel better next session? I mean, in an out-of-character way, I don't know that there's anything that prevents you from just saying that. I think that might be the best. It's the most direct. It is the most direct. Like, it really sucks. You are all shackled in chains in the bottom of a boat, literally slaves right now, but... Stay, stick with me on this. I have a plan. Do you feel that it's a good idea to have like trigger warnings of like, hey, this session we're going to be dealing with, we or depending on what you guys do, might be dealing with like these various topics. Are there ones that you want to avoid, or do you just need a heads up when that scene is coming so you can just like mentally prepare yourself? Yeah, I, I do think trigger warnings are very valid, and certainly especially if you are if you are in any way unsure, like. You need to preface your sessions with that. Um, if you have moments where it's like, we, there is a good chance there's torture here in this, like you are going to liberate blah, 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 and you are going to run up against characters or NPCs that have been possibly tortured. Like, I think you owe your players to at least warn them about those things. Yeah, I think we've talked, like the when we talked to Jalen, we talked about like the fade to black or the mm-hmm. veil where you talk the the TV tropes, you know, gory discretion shot where you're looking over here, there's something bad over there, but you're not looking at it. But like you said, that doesn't really help if you come, like your players go in to rescue somebody and they've just been tortured. Something yeah. bad has happened to them. Like you can't really fade to black the entire rescue scene. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of that and part of what we talked to Jalen about is it involves giving your players a, a safe way to let you know their triggers, even if you don't necessarily know which specific player it belongs to. So you can try and work around that or, you know, not include it if you don't have to or whatever. And also the, I guess, thinking about like the veil, like you don't have to get into gory detail describing mm-hmm. how they're tortured. You should be like, they look very rough. They are yep. not having a good day. They've just been tortured. Okay, move on. And sometimes it's enough to just like to gloss over that and return to mechanics, right? It's a moment to go, This person is at one hit point. Whatever you imagine that is, like, this is a person that is on a slab at one hit point. And the mechanical return sort of helps alleviate that in a lot of ways. Because you don't need to say, like, this person has had their knee chopped off. Like, that's not necessary. Yeah. We're not looking for, like, some scene out of an HBO show with, like, blood and guts. We just need to, like, let the players know that, yeah, this person has had a real rough day and they need your help getting out of here. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't cover? Um, I guess just other thoughts that you've got on 
dealing with these, you know, admittedly heavy topics in a game that's meant to be kind of, well, maybe not light and breezy, but more towards the fun side. Uh, I mean, I think that these topics don't have to just be super heavy, is really what I would say first, too. Um, I know a lot of people are always afraid, and like I said, it's it's good to be a little bit hesitant. trepidatious, hesitant, worried even, about, like, tackling them. But they don't have to be all bad, right? Like, there can actually be really entertaining moments of breaking expectation uh, that don't have to deal with racism or sexism. Uh, I had characters who who met another... It was like a, a an elf culture, and they fed them food, and they were all like, what is this, blah, 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 this. Like, we're super worried about it. And then it ended up that the elves had just prepared this incredible feast of tree moss. And, but, like, that's hilarious. Like, they were super worried. They, they thought they were going to be cannibals or something horrific, or that they were eating, like, these monsters they had just fought. But it, it ended up that it was tree moss. Like, that's a great subversion of the moment. And food is an amazing way to be, like... It's fine. It's totally fine. Yeah. And then the orc was like, oh my god, I'm eating plants. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, if any other tips or tricks or just guidelines for people looking to do this kind of thing, I guess tips and tricks doesn't really apply. Yeah, tips guidelines. is a hard one. Um, guidelines, like, obviously do your research. Don't be afraid to look at other people's set pieces um, or other people's player ideas in this space because, I mean, we cop so much from each other about other things, right? We cop the the three goblins and a hobgoblin encounter. I don't know why we wouldn't cop ideas about how to portray racism in the world from each other too and learn from those ideas. Actually, one of my favorite ones that I would love to talk about is um, Critical Role. Uh, We all love Critical Role. It's great. Um, And they're doing a great job of representation in it and... One of the one moments that I really adored is from an episode where uh, Travis Willingham is playing um, his new character, Ford, uh, who is a half-orc, I believe. Yeah. And, of course, Travis Willingham is, what, a 6'3 white dude who looks like a, like a quarterback. Yeah, like, yeah. Probably could play for the Dallas Cowboys, like, and it certainly wants to. Um, is just like a quintessential American male dude. Plays this character who is an orc, uh, and the other characters confront him in a very small way of like, why do you file your teeth, your tusks? Uh, And it was a brilliant moment, because I think, at least watching that episode, that I don't think Travis had really thought about that part of an orc's appearance before, or how society in the game of Exandria would have perceived an orc with full tusks. Uh, And so he immediately thought, well, I've just sort of ground them down since childhood because other people, other children might've ridiculed me or whatever else. And it really was amazing because you have this person who is at the top of privilege being allowed to, in a safe space, confront the ideas of what that might mean and how that works in the real world too, where, you know, in the eighties people bleached their skin to be more white. Like, there are direct lines and thoughts about how that would have worked. And in the space of D&D, and to represent it to, you know, thousands of people watching, there's a very serious idea there cloaked within what is a very innocuous sort of moment of understanding and learning. That there's that can be discussion about after. So that's what I really hope we see more of, right? I'm sort of, I'm personally really bored of elf rogues who just walk around and steal everything. And I think... I mean, I've, I've only been DMing for three, four years now. Like, my first long-term campaign is the one that I'm still running. And 
but I still like think up character ideas because you know I hear about somebody might be doing a one shot or I just get bored or an idea pops into my head while I'm watching a TV show and the ones that always interest me are the ones that are you know different like the the druid who hates wilderness who loves who loves being in a city he's a swamp druid so he loves being in cities or i think there was i found something online i can't remember where it was but it was basically this document that had a whole bunch of playing against type characters like the paladin who's just been a soldier his whole life he's been in the dirt and the muck he doesn't really believe in the gods but they've given him power um the the wise orc and all these kind of things because they're all to me at least thinking about how to play them they always seem more interesting more fun more alive and vibrant than just yeah they're a dumb orc they're just gonna charge in and and hit stuff or they're you know the elf spellcaster they're gonna hang back and toss a bunch of magic missiles there's always because i think with D &D and role-playing games there's the mechanics of you roll dice you do some things but it's a role-playing game and half of the fun is playing that role and figuring out what all the nooks and crannies of this character is so that you get invested in them because that's what's fun I so like typical last question, I guess, for us, which is, um, uh, is there anything you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself when you first started DMing about this kind of stuff, about dealing with these things in games? Uh, I would have certainly taken better notes, (laughs) is is one of them. I mean, I have so many campaign worlds that are stacks of full scat paper now and are illegible, and I kind of wish I could go back and study, like how reactions happened and and tune. That's the designer in me. I think there are certainly conversations that could have been had earlier about like making safe places for players to be in. Chasing more new players, I think is a big thing. Uh, I think we, we, as a lot of DMs, sort of get complacent with our own groups and we forget to continually be on the look for more players that could want to play and the new ideas they bring. Uh, There's a new player in one of our other games uh, and she's been playing for maybe two months now. But she is incredibly gung ho. She is she is all about it. Messages me until one in the morning about things she could do better or how scenes went or situations, things like that. Uh, and that's really refreshing after playing with a group of people for two years, where everyone kind of packs their bag at the end of the session and goes, "Yeah, that was great. I need to think about it and I have thoughts and they leave." But for someone who's just like, and then like this thing and why I want to do that, I think making space for those people is really important. Uh, representation matters, obviously. Like I, I think I tweet that hashtag every day uh and we're re- like we're really seeing it uh then the new ideas that come along with it i got challenged by a, a new player uh who is in the middle of transitioning and wanted to know how they could make that analogous to D. and it's not a question at the time that i had thought tremendously about and i have given it a lot of research now because i find it i find it fascinating um but D is becoming this canvas for this player with which they may experiment with what will happen after they transition. And what does that mean? And I get to, as a DM, think about what are the sort of economic problems and what are the social problems that that kind of might represent? And what are the the really broad ideas that happen out of that? So in our real worlds, you know, male to female, female to male, anywhere in between there, all of those exist. In D&D, an elf could presumably alter self, cast polymorph, add permanency, and become an ogre. And what does that mean? And what does that mean culturally? And what does that mean from a family standpoint? And how will society identify with them? 
these are great places for us to start thinking about because in the real world, we're going to get to that, presumably. I think it's it just comes back to the D&D being this amazing tool for exploration, not just of, you know, fun fantasy adventures, but also it is a place for people to explore ideas about themselves and the world around them in a safe way that, you know, as long as you're playing with the right people and you've got a DM and other players who are open to these kind of things, then it. I feel like it's... It, I feel like I would be super honored to have somebody at my table who wanted to do something like that, who trusted me enough mm -hmm. to be able to present them with scenarios in game that they had to deal with that related to what they're going through in real life. That would just be amazing. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> I mean, the people are out there though, right? Like, yeah. And that's what I think is the best reminder of it. I just have to find the time <laughs> to run more games. I mean, the goal would be for every session we all make a hundred bucks <laughs> and we quit our day jobs. I mean, oh my God, if I got paid to DM, I would no longer feel bad about the amount of time I put into it. Talk to Craig about it. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much for coming in. This has been... I've been nervous this whole time, but yes. this has been uh, a great talk. And I think it's something that's super important that everybody in the community starts talking about mm -hmm. because people want to talk about these things. They want to like, you know, people are going to want to like your player work things out in there that they're dealing with at the table and having places where they can and we can talk about these kind of things and also still have, still have the fun, fun nonsense yeah. games have the games that are just like yeah you're a bunch of thieves you're all gonna go steal some stuff yeah. like those kind of silly games like all of them have a place and the more open this game is the better it is for everybody the more amazing it becomes yeah and i think like sean people like you and me cis white straight guys we need to I think in generally do better in doing things like this where we listen to other people talk about it and actually, you know, listen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, thanks so um, much for coming on. Yeah. Thank both of you so much for having me. Oh. Oh. Is there anything that you want to plug? Anywhere that you want people to be able to find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at LesterLeeSM. I don't profess to be a professional when it comes to representation in D&D, but like, I will happily answer any questions and really want to keep perpetuating that conversation all right thanks again so much for coming on our art is done by Haley boros our music is overworld by kevin mcleod you can find us on itunes and google play at dms of vancouver and uh, you can also find us on twitter and facebook and all of that and, and we're on instagram technically i guess technically i've <laughs> um, posted like two photos yeah um but you can find me at jesse the red and you can find sean at sean p hagan on twitter and if you go to patreon.com slash DMs of Vancouver, you can get access to episodes a week early. Yeah. Um, and if you like our show, please, you know, tell your friends about it. Maybe give us a review or a rating on iTunes. It would uh, really help us out. Thanks. Bye. Bye.